The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. In 2015, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series for the first time since 1985. Now, this championship created a buzz throughout the city and spread. It spread even amongst those who would not typically identify themselves as baseball fans. Now, this excitement was evident. An estimated over 800,000 people gathered for the downtown parade to celebrate. And what was most striking the day after the parade was over was that there was nearly no crime reported. Think about this. Over 800,000 people walking for miles with all different differences in backgrounds, all gathered together for the same reason, for the same purpose. I think if we go beyond the surface, there was something much deeper being revealed than a love for baseball. What was being revealed and reconfirmed to us is that people don't want to be alone. People want to be a part of something. People desire to be in community. And we know the reason that this desire exists is because we were made to be in community. The persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past enjoyed a perfect relationship with one another. And now we know from Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it tells us that we were made in the image of this triune God. Therefore, we were made to imitate and reflect him. And one of the ways we do this is through relationships. You see, we were designed to be in community, not only with God, but one another. This is why God, after God made the first man, he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. But because of our sin, our relationship with God has been severed. Our relationships with one another have been distorted. And apart from Christ, every attempt that we make to fulfill this eternal longing, it will always come up short. You see, the day after the World Series parade was over, everyone sort of just went back to their own individual lives. All of those differences and backgrounds that existed, even maybe the hostilities that existed, were still alive and well. So we have to ask the question, how is lasting community possible? We've, we know even as Christians that because of our indwelling sin, that perfect community is not possible until Christ returns. But by the grace of God, what I want us to see from our passage is how we can imperfectly reflect the, humanly, the heavenly community, the heavenly community that God is building in Christ. My aim in preaching this passage this morning is to help us cultivate as a church community in a way that lifts up the name of Jesus and gives glory to God. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul says, So then, remember... That at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and preached the peace, the good news of peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, Paul has been writing at length to to communicate the power of God in salvation. One of the ways that Paul says that this is clearly demonstrated is the church. If you want to see a visible representation of the power of God, look at what God is doing to reconcile sinners to himself and one another. Now, we know that Ephesus was the home to the temple goddess Artemis. Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would go to this temple to worship for for healing and protection. This temple would have appeared very impressive, would have appeared very powerful. So lest they forget and be swayed by the culture, Paul wants us to be reminded of truths that we already know. He doesn't want us to become unmoved by the gospel. So he's seeking to remind us of it so that we would live in light of it. If we forget the gospel, if we forget these truths, if we forget the power of God in salvation, we can expect our church to look less like the heavenly community we were saved to reflect and more like the culture with no visible power to a watching world. So what I want to do this morning from our passage is give three ways to cultivate Christian community. Three ways to cultivate Christian community. If you're taking notes, here is my outline. First, we cultivate Christian community through remembering our prior spiritual condition. That's verses 11 and 12. Second, we cultivate Christian community through trusting in Christ's indiscriminate sacrifice. That's verses 13 through 18. And third, we cultivate Christian community through embracing the eternal building plan of God. That's verses 19 through 20. So first, cultivate Christian community through remembering our prior spiritual condition. Look down at verses 11 and 12. Paul has been explaining the gospel of grace and the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It's not until actually in verse 11 that the first command of the letter shows up. What is the first command of the letter in light of being saved by grace through faith? Paul says it's to remember You might be thinking, why of all the first commands, is this the one that Paul gives? What is about remembering that is so vital in the Christian life? What is it about remembering that is so important? Why is it so urgent? Because Paul knows the tendency of the human heart to drift towards spiritual pride. When talking to the Gentiles about being grafted into salvation, this is what he says in Romans eleven eighteen. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. As Christians, we have this fleshly tendency to know all of the right theology, but to function as if it weren't true. We can get really zealous about what Christ has done to save us from our sins. 
But then look at others with disgust because they sin different than us. If this is true, we must ask the question, what does Paul specifically want us to remember? Well, in verses 11 through 12, we get this list of what he tells us we must remember about our prior spiritual state. First, he says you must remember that you lacked physical circumcision. In the Old Old Testament, circumcision was performed to mark off who the people of God were. To be referred to as the uncircumcision was a derogatory term. It was used by the Jews to communicate that they alone had this exclusive relationship with the Lord. Second, he says, remember, you were without Christ. Because you did not belong to the old covenant community, you had no expectation of a Messiah who would deliver you. He says, remember, at one time you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Meaning, you were refugees. You had no home to belong to. And because of this, because the prior list is true, you have no hope and you are godless. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't have some sort of hope or they didn't have some sort of God that they were running to. They would have been running to many gods for help. But because all other hopes are empty and all other fake gods are powerless to deliver, Paul says it's the same as being godless. It's the same as having no hope. Paul says, remember, remember that this list used to describe your prior predicament. Christian, it is a healthy practice to remember not only what we've been saved to, but also what we've been saved from. None of us were helpless victims wanting to be rescued. At one time, you and I, we were running in the direction towards our sin as fast as we could. We are running in the direction of hell as fast as we could. Prior to our conversion, we were under the wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards said, The bow of God's wrath was bent, and the arrow was made ready on the string. And what's worse is that even our good deeds were like filthy rags before God. There was nothing we could do to sort of tip the scales in God's favor. This is what it looks like for us to be hopeless. So why is it important that we remember our prior spiritual status? Because remembering this way keeps us from thinking little about our sin and being shocked by the sin of others. It brings us to this humble posture before God and one another. Christian, when you're the biggest sinner you know, you're less likely to look at others as those people. The reason why Paul gives remembering as a command and not a suggestion is because where pride is left to flourish in the church, where self-righteousness is left to flourish in the church, decay and death will follow. The fastest way to turn a life-giving community into a self-righteous holy huddle is to forget who we were apart from Christ. When you walked into the church this morning, it is likely that your posture described either character of the tax collector and the Pharisee from Luke 18. So ask yourself, which describes you this past week with your coworkers? Which describes your posture when you walked into church this morning towards your brothers and sisters? We remember the, the Pharisees praying, God, thank you, I'm not like this tax collector. I fast, I pray, I do all of the religious stuff. The tax collector can't even look up, beating his breast. He's desperate for God's mercy. He knows he has nothing in his hands to bring to the table. He is desperate for God's mercy. 
And we don't, the problem is, is that we don't typically drift towards having the attitude of the tax collector, do we? The default mode of our hearts is prone to self-righteousness. And because this is true of us, we must surround ourselves with other Christians in community. There is a blinding effect to our sin that makes us too often unaware. We are a people so easily deceived into thinking that we are better than we actually are. If this is true, this means that, church, we are not the best evaluators of ourselves. This is why we must meet together on Sunday morning in community groups throughout the week. We want to meet and provide a context where we can love and admonish one another in the word. So we cultivate community through remembering our prior, prior spiritual condition, but also we cultivate Christian community through trusting in Christ's indiscriminate sacrifice. That leads to the second point. We cultivate Christian community through trusting in Christ's indiscriminate sacrifice. Look down at verses 13 and 18. Because of Christ, the sobering silence of our former predicament is met with the words of Paul, but now. Paul is saying that in Christ, God has taken the initiative to solve our former helpless predicament. He has done something to deal with this vertical hostility that existed between us and God. You see, our first and greatest problem is not how can we do community with one another, but how can sinners like us have fellowship with the holy God? What has he done to smash the beef, to smash the enmity between us and God? Paul says in verse, answers and says in verse 13, he has brought us near by the blood of Christ. He says, you were once far off, meaning separated from God and unable to pro- approach him. But God sent his son Jesus to reconcile sinners through his blood by means of substitution. At the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't. He hung on a bloody cross in the presence of the white hot anger of God so that through faith we could experience loving fellowship in his favorable presence forever. As a church, we must be clear, every time that we gather, it was nothing but the blood of Jesus that has saved us. It is only Christ who has restored us back to God. We could do nothing to point to ourselves. It was only Christ. This is how the vertical problem between us and God has been dealt with. But in Christ, not only has the vertical problem been dealt with, He has done something about our horizontal problem with one another. He has done something about the hostility with our relationships. Paul says in verse 14, Christ is our peace. Whether Jew or Gentile, our peace with God and one another comes only through means of being united to Christ by faith. In his flesh on the cross, he has reconciled both groups together as one. But you might be asking, how does the cross do this? Well, Paul answers the question in verses 14 through 15. He says, at the cross, he has tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He has made of no effect consisting of the commands expressed in the regulations. You see, in the Old Testament, God chose Israel as a people for himself. The commands and regulations were meant to set them apart. The Lord called a people to live together in holiness, to communicate to the pagan lands around them what God was like. But instead of using what the Lord had set up for his purposes, 
They use it to lord it over people and thus increase the hostility. We must understand, though, the significance of this separation and the depth of the hatred of these two groups of people. There used to be a literal wall between the courts of the Gentiles and the inner courts of the Jerusalem temple. If a Gentile were to trespass where the Jews worship, it would have resulted in death. The regulations, the commands, and ordinances, Paul said, it brought up a fence between Jew and Gentile. It fenced off their fellowship with one another. But now in Christ, the mosaic system consisting of the sacrifices and dietary food loss is what Paul says the cross has made of no effect. The sacrifices made in the temple, they were only meant to be temporary, and they actually pointed forward to the once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 says, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, namely Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This is good news, isn't it? Whether white or black, young or old, introvert or extrovert, there is only one way anyone is ever getting saved, and that's through Jesus. It's through the cross. He has provided salvation without distinction for all peoples. He has smashed any commonality that would separate Jew and Gentile. He's done this in the cross. He's removed every obstacle in his flesh. One commentator says the death of Jesus makes the hill at Golgotha level. John Piper said the aim of Jesus in doing this is to make clear that the new people of God, the new Israel that he has come to save is not ethnically defined. It's only defined by attachment to him. At one time, many of us in this room, we had nothing in common with each other. In fact, if you look to your right and left, the people sitting next to you probably wouldn't have been your top choice to be friends with. It wouldn't be your top choice to be friends with naturally. But salvation is not natural. It is supernatural. And it's through the cross and by his grace that we now have an inexhaustible commonality in the gospel and we could talk about it forever and never scratch the surface of its depths. It's this supernatural act of God that has been performed in Christ. It transcends all external differences. Paul says in verse 15 and 16, this was the design of the cross. It was to reconcile sinners and kill hostility and bring lasting peace. The gospel creates more than just a ceasefire. It so transforms a heart full of hostility into hearts full of the love of Christ. This is what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, isn't it? On his way, full of hatred to murder and arrest Christians. If you remember 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul explains this experience and what happened. On his way to arrest Christians, he said, the grace and love and kindness of the Lord overflowed for me. It's like it was swallowed up. His hatred was met with the love of Christ, and he was consumed The purpose in Paul doing this, the purpose in God doing this, Paul says, was to create one new man. He's overcome every obstacle. He wanted to create one body. What God is doing in Christ is creating a new humanity. It's something entirely different. The design of the cross is not to save a people, 
where external differences and shared preferences are all. The design of the cross was to save a diverse people that regardless of external differences and preferences, Jesus alone would be all. That he would be everything. That he would be the ultimate commonality. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3.11, In Christ there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He is everything to the believer. As Christians, we love the cross. We love what Christ has done for us personally, but to fully love the cross, we must love its full design. Let us ask the question then, if the aim of the cross was not only to reconcile us to God, but to one another under the commonality of Christ, why would we intentionally try to put up barriers that the death of Christ meant to tear down? Why would we do that? This is why at this church, we fiercely oppose all forms of racism. We unflinchingly believe that it is anti-gospel and satanic to the core. You can't claim the name of Jesus in racial supremacy at the same time. It doesn't work. You can't say you have peace with God, but hatred towards those made in the image of God. We won't be silent towards this evil, and we believe as a church that this hill is worth dying on. So let us proclaim together with one corporate mouth every Sunday that Jesus alone is supreme. This also means on a lesser level, we want to work against creating ministries around shared preferences. One thing we must understand is that Jews and Gentiles, they could now have peace and fellowship with one another through the cross But what that didn't mean is that it was sort of the absence of conflict. Their backgrounds and differences, they didn't sort of just vanish. I've heard people say we just need to get back to the first century church as if they were always holding hands singing kumbaya around the gospel together. I mean, there is a reason why one of the dominant themes throughout the New Testament is Paul's appeals for unity and showing no partiality. They were real issues that existed to threaten their unity. If you're looking for a church where everyone agrees with you on everything, you're always going to be disappointed. I've been at this church for nearly five years, and I've been deeply hurt by the sin of others. And to my shame, I know that my sin has deeply wounded other members in this church. If you walked into church this morning, and it's your first time, we are not a perfect church We are not a perfect church, but I can assure you that this is a gracious church. You have always been very patient with me, and I thank you and I love you for it. If we don't get this, we will always be jumping from church to church and even community group to community group. There are good reasons to leave a community group. There are good reasons to leave a church, but conflict-free Christianity does not exist in this life. We give the watching world something different when we choose to forgive and love each other despite our differences and preferences. And what I want us to notice is that when Paul deals with conflict in the church, when he deals with these massive differences, his answer wasn't to sort of set up a traditional service for the Jews and a more contemporary service for the Gentiles. His answer was always the gospel 
It was always pointing people back to the sufficiency of the death of Christ, the, the, excuse me, the sufficiency they shared in the commonality of the cross. Our differences are not a hindrance to the gospel. They actually commend it. So what is the primary method that God uses to create this type of community, this type of peace, to reconcile sinners to himself and to one another? It's through preaching. We were reconciled in Christ to proclaim reconciliation to a lost world, to all peoples. This is what Paul means by saying Jesus came and preached to those who are far off and to those who are near. We do this individually, but also together. Every Sunday when we gather, we're proclaiming God's word together through song and through the word preached. If you're not a Christian this morning, you are an enemy of God. You are under his wrath. You must repent and trust in Christ today. It's only through faith alone in him that you can experience the real peace that you most desperately need between you and God. This, this is our only mediator. Christ is our only way that we can have access in the presence of God. Verse, seven, verse 18 says it's only through Christ that we can approach God freely. Brothers and sisters, we cultivate community through trusting in Christ's indiscriminate sacrifice, but we also cultivate Christian community through embracing the eternal building plan of God. Paul says all those things that used to be true about you, they no longer define you in Christ. In verse 19, he says, In Christ you are adopted children. You belong to his people. You belong to the family of God that he has brought together. What will this family look like? We read it earlier. But we get a preview in Revelation 7, 9. He says, After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. If this is a preview of the future finished building project in eternity, I want to ask the question, what is the eternal building plan of God? In his divine wisdom, what is the blueprint? In verses 20 through 22, the eternal building plan of God is his word as the foundation with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Everything leapt into existence at the word of God. Everything is being sustained and held together by the word of God. Therefore, the scriptures being the word of God, taught by the apostles and prophets, are sufficient to build his church. Christ is the cornerstone. John Stott comments on the significance of Christ being our cornerstone. He says, as a building depends for both its cohesion and its development on being tied securely to its cornerstone, so Christ, the cornerstone, is indispensable to the church's unity and growth. Unless it is constantly and securely related to Christ, the church's unity will disintegrate and its growth will either stop or turn into chaos. You remove the word of God, there's no foundation. You remove Christ from the building and it will fall apart. Let the emergent church be a warning to us. If we build on the sand of this world, storms will come and knock our building over. Man-centered tactics and pragmatism may feed the monster of speed in our culture, but they will never outlast the eternal building plan of God. The word often, no doubt, works slow, but its fruit will be echoing in eternity and outlast every popular trend and every fad long after they're dead. 
Isaiah 48 says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Trying to build a church apart from the Lord's eternal building plan would be like buying a car from a junkyard and fixing up the outside to look really nice and then neglecting to change the engine. The car for a time, it may get everyone really excited. You might even draw a crowd when you take it to a car show. But it only took someone popping the hood and looking under the surface to realize there's actually no power. It's worthless. Church, don't be fooled by the culture of overnight success and get-rich-quick schemes. Jonathan Lehman said God's word gives life to the church like electricity gives life to a city. It's through the life-giving power of the word that God is fulfilling his plan for a future heavenly community. Every sinner saved is another diverse stone that is being added to grow the building together. Through his word and through Christ, he's building a multicolored, diverse temple that he will one day dwell with in perfect peace. God in Christ overcame every obstacle, every obstacle to get you. Why? Because he wanted you, Christian. He wanted you to be a part of the family. It was based on his mercy alone, nothing that you brought to the table. The ultimate end to this eternal building plan is a people to whom he will dwell with, who will worship his name forever for the display of his glory. The people God is bringing together in the gospel can only be explained by his power alone. We can have many different strategies as a church to sort of fill seats, but only the power of God in the gospel can bring the kind of people together who will be worshiping around the throne in eternity. Only the gospel and the power of God could so transform the heart that we no longer look at each other in our differences with contempt, but see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's replaced our glasses. He's given us spiritual eyes to see each other. Brothers and sisters, this is a good thing. The glory of God is displayed. Paul says this is how we display the multifaceted wisdom of God. The application for the life of our church is endless. But let me offer one. Because God is after the glory of his own name, we should be after the same. We should be after his glory. That means from the means to the end, it all matters. Our number one question is not what works, but what would glorify God most. When we start at community groups, we first ask the question, who will get along the best? But as we went through different resources and consider this passage, we realized we needed to reform to the biblical, biblical pattern. Instead, we want to intentionally put people together that will better reflect what heaven will look like. We want unbelievers to walk into our church and into our community groups and ask the question, what in the world are these people doing together? What is the dad in cargo shorts doing worshiping with the hipster in hipster jeans? The beauty of the gospel is that it rarely ever creates normal. It's always something strange. And when the outside world sees this, it looks peculiar. They want to know what's going on in this place. This is why we don't want our community groups to be young people groups. We don't want them to be old people groups. We don't want our groups to be single groups or married groups. We want to put our groups together in such a way that if we took Jesus away, 
they would fail miserably. We confess with community groups and as a church as a whole, this vision has not been perfectly accomplished yet. So I want to ask you, would you prayerfully consider joining a community group? Would you prayerfully, even in this church, consider pursuing a relationship that only the gospel could explain? Would you please even pray that Christ would be so central to the community of this church that it would totally dismantle any type of cliques that are set up? This doesn't mean that it's wrong to have relationships where you share preferences and different things outside of Christ, but this does mean they shouldn't be our only relationships. So church, by the grace of God, let us lean into the hard work of Christ-centered community. It may be slow. It may be difficult. It may appear like it's not working. And it will be messy. I can assure you of that. But the glory of God is worth it, isn't it? If lost people ask us, why in the world are you together? We have a glorious answer for them. It's because of Christ. He is everything to us. None of us bring anything to the table. We're standing on his perfect righteousness. And so we want our church and our ministries to reflect that in everything we do for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. Thank you for this gospel that has brought us together. Father, you are so good to us and merciful. Father, would you do a work among us that only the gospel could explain? Would you continue to work amongst us, Lord? Father, we need you desperately. We can't do this on our own. We are so dependent on you. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.